and we looked at the journey to Bethlehem. And any of you guys that joined us, I hope you were blessed by the windy road on Highway 185. I think we only had one person get sick this year. And I hope you were blessed by the, I don't know, the practicality of walking through the cold. Uh, We didn't have to walk the 70 to 100 miles. I kind of messed that up last week. I said it was only 60 to 70 miles from Nazareth, which was podunk in their world, all the way to Bethlehem to be a part of the census. And so I just want to put a little disclaimer. Last week, and Dana, I think, had the same issue, we kind of missed that in the study, where they were traveling 60 to 70 miles as the crow flies to Bethlehem in the south to be a partaker in the census. And yet, the crazy thing is, is if you remember from the beginning of John, the Jews never traveled through Samaria, which was the, the region directly between Nazareth and uh, Bethlehem. They would always go around because they didn't want to hang out with the half-breeds. That's kind of the way they looked at the Samaritans. They were people that were kind of, of mixed religion, and so they were like, you know what, we're going to go around. They're mutts. We're pure breeds, you know, and they kind of had this negative, they treated them with partiality, and God doesn't do that, but sometimes as people get a little bit caught up in themselves, and they do that. And so they would, instead of going 60 to 70 miles, even during this census, they had to travel 100 miles and cross the Jordan River twice to do it. That's pride, right? And so I just wanted to bring that up, that when they traveled, it was actually farther. So we got to experience the journey to Bethlehem, but we didn't have to walk 100 miles. But every time we stopped, there was a new part of the story being revealed. And we got to see the angels sing to the shepherds. We got to see the wise men and hear what they were traveling from the east to see. We got to you know, experience walking into literally born in a barn, Jesus, there being held by his mom and standing there next to his dad, Joseph. And as they're standing there, they're just worshiping and seeing how God has provided this Savior, and yet the Savior was born into a barn. And so what an amazing truth, and yet to look at all the practical and the possible problems with Mary and Joseph looked at like an illegitimate couple who were not married yet, and yet having a child, the risk was that Mary could be stoned to death. And so there was some very real issues going on, and it cost them uh, their very, uh, how they were looked at in society to bring the Savior to the world. And yet, because the Lord had encouraged them and spoke to them in dreams, they, they were confident that He who had promised to fulfill this thing would do it, and that He would take care of them, and He did every step of the way. So that said, we're back in Ephesians this week. But I want you to keep the focus on the fact that this season of Christmas that we celebrate is about Jesus. We know that. Everybody's always saying, you know, let's keep Christ in Christmas. I I don't know when he ever left, but Christ is Christmas. He is the the gift. And yet we live in a culture that's flying farther and farther away from focusing on Christ. And I say that knowing full and well that as a believer now, I wasn't raised with Jesus as being the center. You know, I was raised with, it's all about gifts, and I was excited about gifts. But man, when you don't get what you want for Christmas, that's a pretty disappointing Christmas until you realize that it is about the one true gift that you needed, whether you wanted it or not, Jesus was provided. So in Ephesians, it's no different. The whole of scriptures, if you look at your Bible, it's all about Jesus. So whether we're celebrating Easter or whether we're celebrating 
of the coming of Christ in the form of a baby and raised up for, to be the Savior, to save us from our sins, or whether we're looking towards the future where he will return and set up his rule and reign and he will defeat his enemies and the enemies of those who follow him. His second coming, it's all about how his kingdom is coming here on earth. And so as we look at Ephesians this morning, we want to look at uh, kind of what Paul has been going through as he's writing to this church that existed in Asia. Ephesus was a, an epicenter of culture, and there was worship going on, even though it was worship of false gods and idols. But as that worship is going on, God sends Paul there to reveal the gospel in Acts chapter 19. Now, he's going to a primarily Gentile culture. Maybe you can't relate to that. You know, maybe we're all Gentiles, most of us, unless we really know our heritage, and we might have some sort of descendants in our, in our lineage that are Jewish, but most of us would probably come in the realm of Gentiles. And so we kind of take for granted now, as living in kind of a culture that's been shaped by Christianity, that we, of course, Jesus came to save us, right? But in the day of Jesus, when he came into the world, Jews and Gentiles did not talk together. And to this day, Jews have this negative view of those who are not from their lineage. They, they, God chose us. And if you think that God chose you, you can kind of start to get prideful in that and start to think that he chose you because you had something to offer. But God didn't choose the nation of Israel. He didn't choose Abraham and his descendants because they were something. He actually chose Abraham out of a, a Gentile nation. that His dad was an idol maker, Abraham. And so there was no like, hey, you know, this guy's kind of following me. No, there was a, hey, this guy is nothing. His wife can't even have children. So I'm going to make him a mighty nation. God does that, right? He picks those who are not as if they were. And then he does something that only God can do. He gives new life to basically a barren womb. And if any of you know folks that can't have children on their own because they're barren in some way or another, it's one of the most disheartening things ever. And, and Abraham's wife, Sarai, she, she couldn't have children. And so when God comes along and talks to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a, a mighty nation, we go, okay, well, we've seen the end of the movie already. This is awesome. But for Abraham, he's going, that's not possible. But okay, if you say you can do it, we'll see, right? If it comes to pass, then it's the word of the Lord. So they trusted and they obeyed, and they did what the Lord told them to do, and they failed at it sometimes. But then God made them a mighty nation, and today they still exist. Even though they've been taken out of the land of Israel two or three times that I can remember, I'm probably saying that wrong, but they've actually been disseminated as a nation, captured by the Babylonians because of their disobedience, but also because the Babylonians, that's what they do. They, they come into nations and they swallow them up. But what's really cool is that never in history has a nation been disseminated like that multiple times, bred out. They would send in basically Babylonian people or Assyrians to intermarry with them to try to get rid of them as a nation. And yet in 1948, God made them a nation again. That's never happened in human history. And so we see God's provision for the nation of Israel. But the, poor, the reason he did bless the nation of Israel we already said it's not because they had something to offer, but because he wanted to make himself famous. He wanted to bring glory to his name, to show himself strong on behalf of those that couldn't do for themselves. And the beauty of it is, as he did it, he blessed them so they would be a blessing. Many times we see God's blessing and we go, okay, I've been blessed. I'm going to do my own deal. 
but God has blessed. Everyone he's blessed, he's done it so they can be a blessing to others. There's this flowing through of God's love. And so in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, we saw uh, in verse 3, Paul praised God for all that he has already done in Christ. And then in verse 4 through 14, he briefly, but in depth, lays out the big picture, all that God has done in Christ, all that he's accomplished through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we won't get into that today. Then in verse 15 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul stops and he thanks God for the people in Ephesus who have decided to follow Jesus. You know that old song, I have decided to follow Jesus and, and, and in that case, these people have decided to follow Jesus. Anytime somebody decides to follow Jesus, that only God can do that because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's what he talks about in uh, chapter 2. But what I want to point out in verse 15 through 23 is that Paul, he prays to God on their behalf because anytime someone gets saved, they have this risky factor where they're going, okay, I've decided to follow Jesus, so I'm good now. And so we kind of put it on cruise control, say, hey, God's got me. But there's an active part necessary on behalf of those who have decided to follow Jesus. It's not cruise control. We can't save ourselves. We can't add anything to what God has done. But we are called to follow Jesus, right? I've decided to follow him. So wherever he goes, I'm going to go. Lord, where do you want me to go? So there's this active interaction between us and Jesus, And so Paul prays for them, which makes me think that he had some anxieties about them. People who get saved are in a danger of thinking, okay, I'm good now. I don't have to really pursue the Lord anymore. But Paul had some anxieties because they lived in a culture completely engulfed in sin. So just like when we take um, a piece of metal and we put it on a frame and we sand it down and we paint it a certain color, and we make a street rod out of it. Maybe, a, maybe you're into classic cars, and you put that thing on a body, and you put all the right parts on it, and then you paint it. And then sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't anymore. You put a clear coat on it. Even the ones that do the rat rods, and they paint them flat black, they'll put a clear coat on it to preserve the paint. Do you know why we paint things and why we preserve them in in clear coat and why we rust guard the bottom? It's because everything that is taken from one state, metal is made out of iron ore that comes out of the ground. And so from the moment that you forge it and heat it up and press on it and squeeze it and make it into that body that goes on that car, it is trying to go back to what it originally was. It's trying to decay. It's trying to rust. And so rust pops up under the paint. And you're like, oh, gosh, that's going to, you know, or some people don't care. But, you know, I was raised in a house where we were always washing and waxing that thing because we're going to keep it good until forever because, you know. But the reality is, is metals and us as believers, our flesh, the very thing that we're, we're brought up out of the dust, we're merely dust that's been given the breath of life. When Adam was formed from the dust, you know what started his life? When God breathed into him, ruach, that's the breath of life. God spoke and he breathed into Adam, into his lungs, the breath of life. And that's what brought him to be. Not just dust anymore formed out of clay, but a living, breathing being that has free will and the ability to make good and bad decisions. And and as a result of that, we have life 
And as a result of our salvation, being born again, we have eternal life. Not just the breath of life, but eternal life. And so from the moment that we're saved, our, our soul just cries out, thank you, Lord. But our flesh still goes, okay, I don't want to go back and do this. There's that battle going on, and it's very real. But the cool thing is, is as we are preserved by salt and light, and as we present ourselves willing servants to the Lord, He desires to teach us things that will keep us from sin. In Psalm chapter 119, what um, the psalmist writes is, Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, if you've ever walked out into the woods, maybe some of your deer hunters went out super early in the morning. You don't want to scare the deer away, even though they're already up and they've been moving around. But you get out there early in the hopes that you can get there before the deer know you're there. You get up in your stand or you sit in your blind or you sit on a rock, whatever it might be, and you sit there and you wait. But to get there, there's lots of rocks and stumbling and sticks in the way. So you take what? A flashlight. Or some of you are hardcore and you're like, hey, the moon's enough for me. But my point is, is you go out there and you don't want to trip and break your, your neck. You want to go out there and sit and kill something. You don't want to knock your scope off. So you take something that will keep you from stumbling. In this life, in this dark world, we need a light. And so Jesus comes. He is the light of the world. My daughter falls asleep at night. and She goes, Daddy, it's too dark in here. I tell her, hey, you're okay because you know the light of the world. Now, we still got a nightlight, but we, we all need the revealing. We all need to be able to see so we don't stumble. And so Paul prays for them that they would have understanding of the power that God used to save us. And he even says this, the power that saved us, it's not just like, you know, half power or like, you know, the, the, the backup generator. The power that God used to save us is the same exact power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. How cool is that? No one before has ever been raised from the dead until Jesus came along. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that saves you and I and preserves us until the day that we see Jesus face to face and we are exactly as we were always meant to be. Unbroken fellowship. We, we look at him and we see, and he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. And he helps us, and he gives us the ability to admit when we're wrong and to repent of our sin. So <clears throat> I've kind of gone off on, I, I wanted to lead back into what we've been studying in Ephesians because we took a week off. But then in chapter 2, he goes on and he explains that, number one, before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4, he says, but God... And that's a great phrase in, in Scripture. But God, despite all of that, just like the phrase, and it shall come to pass, you know, hey, this is going to come to pass. It'll be over soon. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might basically point to us and say, hey, see what I did? There's my, there's my grace in action. Look at that changed life. It's a trophy for the Lord. Do you know that God sees you as a trophy? How crazy is that? You know, he looks at us and we are living, breathing trophies of what he has done in Christ. 
But then he also goes on to say in verse 11 through uh, 13 that we are also, the only reason we've been brought near to Christ is because of one thing, and that is the blood of Christ, his death, the shedding of his blood. The Old Testament says without the shedding of blood, we can't be forgiven. Even in the Old Testament, they would have to kill an animal The blood would be sprinkled on the altar as an offering to the Lord, and they were forgiven because of that blood. But that blood of bulls and goats was only meant to cover our sins until the time that Jesus would come, where that blood would know his blood, being from a a precious and spotless lamb, would not cover our sins, but it would actually cleanse us of our sins to remove them. How crazy is that? To remove the sins that I've committed in the past, no matter how heinous, no matter how unspeakable, no matter how proud we were at the moment we committed it, God's willing to forgive us and make us new. And so, you know, think about it like this. If I wreck my car, a lot of car analogies, I know. I was raised in a garage. That's how it goes. But if I wreck my car and I pull that thing into the garage and I say, hey, Brad Wooten, can you fix this thing? He says, yes. Now, is he going to fix that thing? Yes, and it will be drivable. They'll align it. They'll fix the paint if I want, depending on how much I'm willing to spend. But then guess what happens? They shine that thing up, but it is never quite the same again. Whether the tires kind of wear different or something slightly out of line, somebody goes to buy that thing, is the value the same? No. Hey, has this thing been crashed? Yeah. You know, or no. But then they look under the hood and they see the different paint lines and they go, wait a minute, something's different here. It's never the same. But in Christ, when we're forgiven and cleansed and have all of our sins removed, we are no longer the same creation we once were. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5. I'm a new creation in Christ, not a used one fixed, but a new one. How many of you want to be a new vehicle versus a used one? I do. You know, and in Christ, that's what we are. How crazy is that? You know, he doesn't fix us up or make us slightly better or reform us in some way or fix the dents. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new heart, one that's made of flesh, no longer hardened to the things of the world. And so, in verse 14 of chapter 2, he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commands that contained in ordinances, so to create in himself one new man from two. Now, he's not talking about two different people. He's talking about two different people groups. And I love this because I struggled with this this week, and I was like, well, how can we relate to that? We don't have the Jew and Gentile thing. We're not at odds with one another. We don't go to the, the temple mount and go, hey, can we come in? They're like, no, you're not Jewish. You come in, we, they could kill you. No one was allowed into the Holy of Holies. But now in Christ, because of what God has done in forgiving us, he's made together one man out of two. The body, not the bodies of Christ, but the body of Christ, bringing together Jew and Gentile under one name, Jesus being the head of the church and us being the body. There's no separation. If in anyone's body there's a separation between members, what does that mean? It means they're broken. Someone's broken. What do they do? They go to the hospital. We've got to fix it. So what's he talking about here? Well, the only thing I could think of to re- relate to was when Jesus did this, 
It's like this. When I was born and raised, I wasn't raised in church. So there was the church people and there was the non-church people. And unfortunately, this still happens today. Somebody comes into church, they weren't raised in church, they're going to feel uncomfortable anyway because they feel like, I'm, I'm, I don't belong here, this isn't my people, you know. But when you walk in, there should be this embracing of, hey, you follow Jesus too? Yeah, me too. I've walked with the Lord my whole life. Have you? No. Well, that's odd. And maybe you never experienced that, but I did. I walked in and I felt like I'm not really a part of this thing because this isn't really my heritage. But in Christ, we have a new heritage. We have a new inheritance. We are the family of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Many times I've looked at that and looked at Jesus and I'm like, He saved me. He's my Savior. Okay. He, he leads me. He's my Lord. But do you know that we're brothers and sisters with Christ? We've been placed in the family of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Whatever He inherits from His Father, we're partakers of that same inheritance. Maybe you weren't raised in a family where there's like this big inheritance when your family passes on. There, there, there's one for me, but frankly, because of what Christ has done for me, I don't even need it. If it wasn't there, I have just as much hope because my inheritance is whatever Jesus has for me. And I don't mean practical financial blessing. I mean eternal inheritance that can't be taken away. The stock market crashes, that thing's still there. I lose my 401k or have to cash it out early because I, I, I make some bad decisions. Guess what? <laughs> I don't need it. I got Christ. And he's going to provide for those who are his. Every father tries to provide for his kids, right? How much more the God of all creation who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is what the psalmist says. So I know that's a long lead in and I'll wrap it up. I promise I won't go super long this morning, but I wanted to lead into that because Christ has made this church out of two groups that were at odds with one another. And as we get into it, I want you to look that he uses in chapter 1 the term we Jews because Paul was Jewish. And then he uses the term you Gentiles. So even in what he has to say, there's an us and them. You know, maybe it's, it's the conversation between two basketball teams, the us and them. And they're at odds with one another. You know, we just got done with the Thanksgiving tournament. People down here do not like the West County Bulldogs. People in West County probably can't stand the Arcadia Valley Tigers. You know, there's this enmity. There's this rivalry. You know, I was raised in Farmington, so I went to the Farmington schools. We hated North County. Couldn't stand them. You know, that, that was not our people. In my day, they did the vanilla ice. They iced their t- They did the, the hole on their hair. I didn't have any hair then either. But they had the, they, they frosted their tips. They had the, the, the blonde hair on the top. And I was like, hey, that guy's from North County. They're like, how do you know that? Look at his haircut, you know. There was the us and them, even in what they wore. But here we are. We have these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And in chapter 3, Paul's explaining his unique role in the plan of salvation. Did Paul save anybody? I mean, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament, so you'd, you'd almost get the idea that like he's, there's Jesus, and then there's Paul, and then there's me down here. But that's not the case. Paul saw himself, and he's going to say in today's passage that he was the, the, least among all, you know, the, the, the least among all the apostles, I think. And then later on in life, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. When he really realized who he was in Christ, knew he had a unique position as an apostle, but he also realized, hey, I'm a, I'm a saved sinner. I'm a messed up, jacked up, wrecked vehicle that God's made new. And so in chapter 3, Paul's revealing his 
place in the ministry of God. And I want you guys to consider, each one of us has been filled with the Holy Spirit as a believer. We've been given salvation, and we've been gifted specifically to serve the body of Christ in some way, to serve the kingdom of God. And Paul is just telling us here what his particular portion is. And many times we get so enamored with Paul and Peter and John and James and these guys, but we are the same. The Bible calls us saints just like it did them. Saints are just people that have decided to follow Jesus, who trust him with their lives and get really good at obeying. If you will get really good at obeying, God's going to give you something to do, and he's going to give you the power to fulfill that ministry. So let me ask you this morning, have you considered that God's got a specific ministry for you, and he wants you to be just as excited about it as Paul was about his? Maybe it won't look like Paul. You won't be a missionary. Maybe, you know, you're a welder and you're on the road. People are surrounding you that don't know Jesus and have no hope. Maybe you're a U.S. tool guy like me. I go in and I do paperwork and I can't stand it. But there are 400 to 600 people, I can't remember, at that place that many of them don't know Jesus, a good portion. So don't look at it like your identity is in that job. Paul's identity was not in the fact that he made tents overnight so he could preach the gospel during the day. Paul's identity was, I'm a, I'm a son of God. I'm a servant of the Lord. He looked at himself as a slave of God. Not a slave like forced labor, but a bond servant, a free will slave. I have it way better off with this master than I ever did when I was following my own lusts and desires. And so whatever this master wants me to do, I'm in. So in chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. He says, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Remember, when he writes this letter and he's encouraging them, you know where he's at? He's in jail. I don't know a whole lot of people that write encouraging letters from jail. They write a bunch of letters of, get me out of here. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Paul says, I'm not innocent. I, I did preach the gospel and they threw me in the jail for that. But while I'm in here, I see it as an opportunity to write to these churches I planted. Paul wasn't like a guy that had a ton of free time. You know, we always picture these guys that just sitting in their room, kind of kicking back, drinking their cup of coffee, a little candlelight, a little... You know, hey, I think I'm going to write today. No, Paul was, if you read the book of Acts, that guy traveled all the time. He was sick all the time. He was getting stoned, not drugs. He was getting rocks chucked at him. And so he wasn't writing no letters. So the Lord goes, hey, I'm going to give you a little vacay. <laughs> Where's my vacay going to be? Going to be at the Hilton, the Holiday Inn Express? No, I'm going to put you in a Roman jail. Those Roman jails were not three, three hots in a cot. They were, hey, if your friends really like you and they bring you food, then you won't starve to death. Hey, I uh, hope you're not allergic to mold because you're going to be a wet, damp dungeon with no light. You're going to be chained to the wall, chained to Roman guards, and they do not smell good, and they don't like you. They call you dirty Jew. So while he's in that prison, rather than being down in the dumps, he writes letters of encouragement to the people that God used him to share the gospel with. Because he's concerned for their salvation. He's concerned that they'll be disappointed. He's concerned that they'll lose heart because, hey, if we follow the Lord as much as Paul told us to, hey, there's the promise. Our leader is in jail. Just like the disciples who followed Jesus, they're going, wait a minute, we're following Jesus and they killed Jesus. So if we follow him, just like he lived his life, we might get killed. And so Paul says, hey, that's for your benefit. We'll get there. He says, 
If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Paul has this tendency to do what I just did this morning and start off with a phrase, start talking, and then go off on a bunch of rabbit trails and then come back to the end of the sentence. You know, he's a run-on sentence guy. He writes the longest sentences in the world. So I wanted to point out, as I was reading this, I got confused. But what I want to point out is he starts making his point in verse 1. And then in verse 2 through 5, he says a bunch of stuff that are side notes. And then in verse 6 and 7, he ends his main point. So let's just read it that way. Verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, and then jump down to verse 6. Well, he says, he says in verse uh, 6 that the, his purpose was, the, the ministry God gave him, was that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, and my ministry is to share the gospel with who? The Gentiles, those who were once far off, those who were not allowed into the Holy of Holies. Paul was a Jew, and yet God gave him the ministry of talking to the Gentiles. Peter was a Jew, but he was given the ministry of sharing the gospel with the Jews. Those who thought they were close, and yet they were not close enough to be saved, he sent another man. So then in verse 7, This is specifically what Paul's ministry was, to share the good news with Gentiles. So then in verse 8, Paul explains his unique purpose and calling. Verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. And the grace that he's talking about is a spiritual gift. The word is charis, which means grace, but it's also a spirituality. In 1 Corinthians, we talked about spiritual gifts, spiritualities. They were sensual. They were carnal. They were fleshly. Paul says, hey, if you're in Christ, you've been gifted spiritually. And so Paul says that my spiritual gift is this, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches that we've been given are not able to be counted and measured. It's, it's too big to take in all at once. The reason, one of the biggest reasons that we need to read our word, read the God's word every day is because it's too much to take in if you just sat down and read it cover to cover. One uh, pastor that I listened to, I think it was Alistair Begg, probably wasn't, but my memory fails me, but he said, preaching on a Sunday morning is like taking a 60-mile journey and taking a thimble and getting a little bit of water and then carrying it back the, the distance to where you want to give it to people and say, this is the ocean. So you're taking a thimble of the massiveness of the ocean and going, this is what the ocean's like. And then you're going, do you understand the ocean now? And people are going, it's not very big. Well, is, is the ocean huge? Yes. Did he take a portion of the ocean to the people? Yes. But they can't take it all in through the lens of that thimble. And preaching the word of God and telling people about the love that Jesus has for us and trying to explain it is just that. 
It's like walking up to the Creator, taking in all I can carry, I'm really a thimble, picking it all up, embracing it, trying to put it in a Ziploc bag and carry it to you guys and go, here's the love of God. And during that time, you're just going, okay, that was a little bit, but it's got, it's that, so God's pretty small. No, he's huge. And yet to try to explain him with words, it's unsearchable. It's impossible to explain in 45 minutes or however long I go, the love of God and the character of God and the, the greatness of God with mere human words. It's too much to take in. And so we daily got to just take as much as we can take in. Don't glut ourselves. Try to process it and then come again the next day or the, in the evening or whenever it is and try to just over and over try to understand the love that God has for us. He says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, he had proper perspective on who he is, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. God's not just revealing His character and His goodness to people. Did you know that we also have other witnesses that we don't even know about? In 1 Peter, Paul or Peter talks about the fact that angels look at the salvation that we've been given and they just are in awe. Why would God be so good to them? Do you know the angels don't have an opportunity to be saved? That a third of them were taken down at the time that Lucifer fell, Satan? Satan just means against God, the adversary. But when he fell, he took a third of heaven's angels with him, and they have no opportunity to repent. They are eternally separated from God because of that one decision. And they are angels. Made by God, not gods themselves, but created beings in the principalities and the powers of the spiritual dark the, the world. And yet in our realm, we human beings, we were given this special relationship with God. We were given fellowship with Him in the garden. And when we rebelled against God, from that point on, God was sent out on a rescue mission to save us from rejecting His truth. One command, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, when Satan came along, he said, hey, God just doesn't want you to eat that because he knows that in the day you eat of it, that you'll be like him. Well, oh, that's kind of intriguing. I wonder what it's like to be God. And so Eve is deceived and she takes of that tree, she eats of it. And from that day on, humanity dies at the end of so many years. And as the years went on, there's less and less years in your life because of sin tainting the human body even. And yet God, who did not give a salvation plan for the angels, for us, He gives us a Savior. Someone who was born among us, saves us, and then intercedes for us even now, sits at the right hand of God and prays for us that we would obtain this salvation that He died to procure, redeeming our lives. And the angels look at this and they're like, why do they get a second chance? And yet God does this and he has reasons for it. But in the Old Testament, if you've ever read any of, the prophet, any of the prophets, what I want you to know is many of them wrote down what God showed them, and yet they didn't quite understand what they were writing. It was 
it was explained to them by God, but they, they knew they were writing about the Messiah that was to come. But in the day of Jesus, when Jesus came on the scene, they thought he was going to be a, a practical savior. He was going to be their next king, earthly king. And so they're going, Messiah is going to save us. And the Romans heard that and they're like, who's this king that's coming? And Herod even tried to have him killed. But when Messiah came on the scene and then at the end of his ministry walked into the procession into uh, Jerusalem, they were like, hey, hallelujah. And they sang songs. And then Jesus is standing there and the, the leaders, the religious leaders at the time, they said, hey, why don't you tell them to shut their pie hole and stop worshiping you because you're not God. He said, if I told them to stop worshiping me, even the rocks would cry out because he was God. He was obtaining worship for the first time publicly. And yet the same crowd that worshipped him when he was leaving and he was accused, he was put to death, they were the same ones saying, crucify him. And so my point is this salvation was God's plan. And so in, in verse um, 13, after speaking about the, the eternal purpose which God accomplished through Jesus, Verse 12 says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We have access to the Father because of what Jesus did. Therefore, verse 13, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. He says, you might look at me being in prison as the biggest downer, but God's placed me in prison for your benefit. Now, that's eternal perspective. Because many times God allows hardships in our lives and we see it as the biggest downer. But what Paul says is, I am in prison for your benefit. And there were many times Paul was put in prison. And every time somebody benefited from it. Think about it. When, when Paul went to Philippi in Macedonia in Acts chapter like 15 or something, he shows up there and because he preaches the gospel, they start up basically a church there. But he's walking through one day, and there's this woman, and she's saying, this is, G- this is uh, Paul, and he came, comes to proclaim salvation of the Most High God. And Paul got annoyed at this lady because she was demon-possessed. So she had the gift of uh, uh, fortune-telling. So this demon would basically possess her, and because she was a fortune-teller, there were men who owned her and used her for financial gain. But she was chained by this demon. She was not able to be free. And so Paul kind of got annoyed by her because God doesn't need demons to proclaim his name. But also Paul wanted to set her free. So he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of this woman. And because of that, she was free. But her owners no longer got financial gain. And so they took him to court. Hey, this guy's ruined our jobs. He's taken away from our pocketbooks. And so Paul was put in jail. While Paul's in jail, he could have been very downcast, disappointed, discouraged, and yet he and the other man that was with him, about midnight, they were sitting in their jail cell. You know what they were doing? They weren't complaining. They were praising the Lord. They were worshiping. And while they were worshiping, God shook the gates. The whole prison shook, and all the doors of the the different uh, cells opened up, And just as the jailer was about to kill himself because if the the men got away, it would be on his tail. He would be put to death for them escaping. Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're still in here. And the the jailer's like, what? 
Why are you still in here? Why have you been singing songs all night? I'm trying to sleep. Why, why are you guys so joyful? You're in jail. They're going to put you to death probably. Or you're going to die in here. And as he asks them that, they say, hey, have you heard about this guy named Jesus? And at the hearing of the message of salvation, this man takes him, these prisoners, to his home, washes their wounds. They'd been beaten with whips. And then his whole household gets saved. So Paul says here, look, I, I've been through this before. Here's the deal. I'm in jail for your benefit. Let me write to you. Let me encourage you. Don't be discouraged because I'm in jail because the purposes of God will still be fulfilled. So in verse 14, Paul's second prayer of Ephesians, for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Paul wants to build them up, not like a workout, not to be stronger in themselves, but to be built up spiritually from the inside out, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. Think about it. You build a house and it doesn't have a good foundation. The day of adversity comes and that thing is not going to stand, whether it's a flood or wind or whatever. So Paul says, I want your foundations to be strong. I want you to be strengthened by Christ that you may be able to comprehend. Comprehension is hard for me. Any of you guys in here readers? I'm not. I can read a book like three times and people will ask me later, like, what'd you read? And I'm like, oh, you know, I, comprehension. I struggle with that from the third grade on, probably, probably sooner than that. But my point is, Paul wants them to be able to comprehend. He wants them to be able to, to learn and to keep that knowledge in there. So he prays for it. And as he prays for it, he says, I want you to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that you can comprehend the dimensions the size, the hugeness of God's love for you so you can comprehend with all the saints. He says, I want you to know the love of God that is unknowable. He says, that surpasses knowledge. That's, that's basically Paul's praying for the impossible, for us to be able to comprehend and take in with all the saints how much God truly loves us. Because when you know how much and you can comprehend how much God cares for you, it changes everything. You have hope that goes beyond circumstances. You have joy because whatever happens in the daily, you know that God cares for you. Look at Romans chapter 8. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. When you think the love of God is this size and something slightly bigger happens to you, you go, well, that doesn't matter anymore. But when you realize that God's love for you is so great, anything that can happen despite all of that, seems eeny, weeny, tiny, minuscule. And so it's, it's an anchor that can't be moved. It's a hope. And then he says this, and I love this. He ends his prayer, and he kind of, he's talking to them, but he's still kind of praying. He says, now, in light of this, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, 
he's praying to the Lord. He says, according to the power that works in us, remember that's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he, he's talking to them and he says, now, all of the purpose of God's giving you the comprehension to understand the love of Christ is not just so that you can be blessed and be in your own little circle or shell, but it's so that through the church, not through me, not through you individually, but through the church, which is the pillar and the ground, the, the way that God reveals himself to this world is through his church. If you see a large group of people, if you see a small group of people that join together and get along and have this leader they can't see and yet they get along and they have unity and they love one another, it, it reveals that there is somebody in our midst that's making it all happen. And when God reveals that to a community or to a state or to a nation or to a workplace, that there's this group of people that get along, even though they have different views on things that don't matter as much, people see Jesus because there aren't big groups of people that just get along all the time. But in order for that to happen, we have to realize who we are and who God is, that we serve Him and He is our head. We have to work together and we have to intermingle, and we have to serve one another and provide for one another, or sometimes receive from one another. And then because of the unity that's in the body of Christ, people won't see you and I anymore. They won't see the jacked up messes that are made new creations. What they'll see is a literal living and serving body of Christ that doesn't look like you and I individually anymore. It looks like a mosaic. And when you zoom out, what you see is the hands and feet of Jesus. And you see his leadership fulfilling its role. And you see communities, the face of them, changed by the gospel. Because people don't want to see a jacked up church that doesn't agree with each other. They're like, hey, I don't want to join that thing. But when they see a group of people that love the Lord and they love one another because of it, they're like, hey, I could use a little bit of that because my life's not like that at all. My workplace isn't like that. My family's not like that. Mine's not. I don't know about you guys. I especially remember it when I see them at the holidays. But Jesus wants to do something different. He wants to take groups of people that are at odds with one another, whether they, they're from Arcadia or Pilot Knob or, or, or even West County <laughs> or South Iron. You know, he wants to take people that can't stand one another, family members that haven't talked for years. He wants to bring them back together. Not so that they can just act like never, nothing ever happened, but so that they can get past it and find healing and hope and joy. They will not see that if you continue arguing with your family members the holidays. They will not see that if you won't swallow your pride and get over it. They will see that if you're willing to be accused of things that you didn't really do. They will see that if, if you're willing to love people even though they don't love you. That's what Jesus did for us. They'll see that love that only Christ has shown. So number one, do you know what particular ministry God's given you in his kingdom growth, in his kingdom building, in his kingdom? How does God want you to serve? And number two, do you see how big God is? My prayer is just what Paul had. If he prayed it, it's got to be good, right? 
that you'd be able to understand the, the width and the length and the depth and the volume and the greatness of God's love for you. Not just because of what Jesus did on the cross, but what, because of what he still wants to do in your day, day, day-to-day life now. And that you'd be able to comprehend as a group, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth here today as it is being done in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Lord. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory that will last forever. Father, we thank you so much for the the message that Paul gave. And we thank you for his encouragement from a very discouraging position as he's in prison. We thank you that during this season of of celebrating Christmas, that uh, even though the the culture is forgetting what it's really about, or maybe, consider this, they never knew what it was. But Father, I thank you that despite all of my past, that you revealed the truth to me and you've redeemed my life and you've given me a reason to hope, not for the future of my life, but eternal hope that goes beyond the circumstances in the daily. Lord, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the mission you've given me to do. I pray for all those here that they would know what your mission is for them. And Father, I want to pray for safety in the back right now. Thank you, Lord, for children learning about Jesus and Christmas. And thank you for this season where we get to tell everybody. uh, Not, you know, we've just been telling Lucy lately that when people ask her what she wants for Christmas, to remind them that it's, it's about Jesus being the gift for me. And Father, that gift is meant for everyone, Jew, Gentile, West County Bulldogs fans, um, you know, even for the relatives we can't stand. They need Jesus. So Father, help us to spread the message. Help us to be your hands and feet. And Father, um, help us to realize how loved we are personally. You've given your son for us. How can we not live our lives for you? We love you, Lord, and we thank you. I pray you'd bless all these as they go into their lives this week. Bless them, give them hope, and Father, strengthen them inwardly so that when things happen, that they'd be able to stand. In Jesus' name, amen.